Give me your clothes, your boots, and your podcast. It is time for The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. I'm your host, Rob Stennett, here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Hey, Andrew, what's up? What's up, Rob? And we also have John Connor Bolin. John, what's up, dude? Andrew, Rob, it is good to be back on the podcast today. I'm doing well. Um, hey, everyone. Go ahead and click over and subscribe, rate, review. Let us know what you think about the podcast. We love reading your reviews. And if you think it's good, go ahead and give us some stars. It helps us uh, get the message out there. And I want to say thank you to everyone who does subscribe. I'm telling you, I put an episode up and right away we got hundreds of downloads. Some of you like have no friends or no life or just like you're just sitting around waiting for a new episode. And for all of you, I'm saying thank you. You're awesome. Thanks for being on the team. Well, and let me just say, if you if you like this podcast, then share it with your friends. That's the it's the gift that keeps on giving. Literally just press the share button. Let your friends know about the podcast. We'd love that. Okay, we're leaving self-promotion corner. That's over. Good job, guys. Now it's time to talk about a movie that I threw out there, which is Terminator 2. And the reason I picked this movie is because we're entering into summer blockbuster season. I love summer blockbusters. We have a bunch of big ones coming out this summer. But when I think summer blockbusters, I think of an all-time epic one. And what's so amazing about this is it's not only a summer blockbuster, but it is a sequel. And it may not even be just a sequel. I think it is the sequel. So my question for you both as we start this podcast is... Is Terminator 2 the best sequel ever? The best sequel ever? Like, are you talking about the biggest gap between the first one and the second one? I'm just saying, like, where do you think it ranks? Like, where is it in sequels overall? Oof. It's in it's in the top three for sure. What do you think, John? I think that Terminator 2 is, like, the best leap forward for a sequel of all time. But, I, yeah, and I think is it is it a nine-year gap between one and two or a ten-year gap? Yeah, I've, it's I, an 84, I think. 84 to 91. 84, I was a freshman in high school. Um, don't judge me. Everyone's doing the math. But anyway, uh, I'm relevant still. Really super relevant. I picture you in like shoulder pads <laughs> with like a puffy jean jacket. I and did. A I, I had a Coca-Cola sweatshirt and I had skinny jeans <laughs> that I bought at the Oak Tree. If you don't know what that is, look it up. I agree um, as far as like leap forward. It's a, it's a loaded question, right? There's no way for it to be a best sequel because Godfather 2 is a sequel and that one best picture. And is an all-time <laughs> sequel. So uh, am I saying Terminator 2 is better than Godfather 2? I am not. But I think there's something here of like the biggest leap forward. What do you think, Andrew? Is, there, is this the best leap forward? I think in a lot of categories it is. I think in special effects for sure. Like if you watch the first one, the last act where the Terminator is in full robot form, it's almost like bad Godzilla animatronic claymation style. This was before really good computer animation and so it really is like a stop motion robot. All of the like spaceships that are flying, like the first few few scenes, uh, not great. Yeah, I'm thinking like if you put all the number twos together in a lineup, then T2 is not the best of those. But I do think if you put the number ones and number twos together in a lineup, then maybe T2 is the better like improvement over number one. Is that, is that, I think that's what you're saying, Rob, and I would agree with that. Yeah, so I tell think me. We also need to come up with a better way of saying this than number ones and number twos because, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Andrew, we're yeah, trying to have a to real Andrew to discussion. <laughs> trying to have a deep discussion on film merit. Can we keep it focused, bro? Like, come on. It's a family show here, Andrew. It's a family show. Okay, so I made a list of sequels, not a list of all time number twos. This is a list of sequels that are my favorites. And so here we go. This is my like top five, which is Aliens. Star Trek 2, The Empire Strikes Back, Godfather 2, Terminator 2. 
I think of all those five films, like, you know, Star Wars is an all-time phenomenon. So yes, Empire Strikes Back is a great sequel, but it's got Star Wars. Alien is an incredible film, and so Aliens is great, but Alien was good. But the jump between Terminator and Terminator 2, I think it's pretty significant. One of the crazy things about what you just said, too, is that two of those five sequels are directed by James Cameron. So James Cameron, this is the second film we've done. I don't think we've done a film by two directors. So we picked Titanic and then we picked Terminator 2. And that says something about his uh, resume. For sure. Well, of all those, Terminator 2 is maybe the only one that clearly surpassed the number one perhaps with the exception of Empire Strikes Back. Would you agree with that or not necessarily? Well, I I mentioned Star Trek 2. Maybe I know Godfather one... 2 might be the other example. Yeah, but Godfather 1 is just a masterpiece. I love that movie, and I think it may be better than 2. And so they're right neck and neck. Star Trek 1 is a hot mess. It's about like this bald lady who's like actually a robot, and it's really boring. And so Star Trek 2 is actually this like really thrilling film that I think is significant because... Star Trek is just still here today because of that film. But I think Star Trek 2 and Terminator 2 are the two films that are like, oh, wow, those are films that started a franchise. Those are films that we have a lot of other films because of it. And the wild thing about T2 is that this movie at this point, it came out in 1991, right? So we're looking at a movie that came out 31 years ago. It's crazy. Since then, we've had Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, Terminator Salvation. Terminator Genesis, Terminator Dark Fate, which is a huge franchise and almost across the board, none of those have been met with any kind of critical or audience enthusiasm. Like across the board, it's been like thumbs down for 30 years and they're still making Terminator movies. And I think it's because Terminator 2 is that good. And I can't think of another movie in which the franchise is pretty much accepted as bad but there's a movie that's so good, people are still trying to replicate it 30 years later. So I need to stand up for a moment for Terminator 1, because like you list all those other movies, like Genesis and Salvation, all that sort of stuff. Terminator 1 is the godfather compared to Terminator Salvation or Terminator Genesis. Like It really is this like tight action thriller, really interesting, really good. And so for me, it's not that Terminator 1 is bad. I actually think it's a great film, but like... T2, like, blew our minds. Like, we just couldn't believe it. when it, Do you remember it coming out, John? It was like uh, the epitome of action-adventure. Of course, at that point, then, I think Arnold did quite a few movies between T1 and T2 that were on the action-adventure front. What were some of those movies that he made? So he was doing Commando. He was doing The Running Man. He was doing Predator. He did uh, Total Recall. In 84, he's a bodybuilder who was like, hey, we give him a shotgun and let him run around. By 91, he is the biggest movie star in the world. I remember watching T2 in the theater thinking, just kind of like holding your breath for two hours and 20 minutes or whatever it is. Like literally, what a great picture of a classic action hero combined with sci-fi, combined with just mind-blowing at the time, mind-blowing special effects. I remember going into the movie theater. I think I was like... 12 or 13 and I bought tickets to Rocketeer and I snuck into Terminator 2. I was like, I was like one for Rocketeer. And then I snuck into Terminator 2. I was like 12 years old. And then all of a sudden T-1000 is like stabbing dudes in the eye. And I was so terrified. I was like, this is what happens at rated R movies freaked out. But I was also hooked. I was like, this is crack cocaine for me. I'm going to go every single day. That's amazing. I know that we don't want to like camp down on this whole like sequel talk too long. 
But I do think that there is something about Terminator 2 beyond that the special effects are better. I would agree that the original Terminator is good, and I'm not bagging on that in the franchise. But Terminator 2 really is this synthesis of a lot of things. What jumps out at you beyond that's just the effects and the action as like making it basically the greatest sequel of all time? So the 80s were full of sequels with Roman numerals, right? Like Beverly Hills Cop 2, Rocky 1, Rocky 2. A sequel is like, hey, we're going to take that story and just run it back the exact same story because it was so much fun. Terminator 2 actually does that, but it adds so many wrinkles. It adds so much depth. It adds so many new characters that it actually expanded the world. You know, like this is before Kevin Feige is like, mapping out Marvel and all this sort of stuff. This was actually James Cameron saying, oh, like, okay, I'm going to take this idea and really expand this world. And I think that's what made it so fresh and interesting. And to the credit of that, like, world building within basically two movies, I think that is why people keep making Terminator movies, is the idea of the Terminator world is fascinating. And this idea of John Connor, Sarah Connor, prophecy and time travel and this fate of this post-apocalyptic robot uprising, I think is a fascinating world. And I think we keep trying to figure out how to have fun in that world. Well, I do think the idea of AI is evil and coming after us. And what if the computers take control? Like was scary at that point. And honestly, it's still scary 31 years later, isn't it? I, I think it's something that scares us less day to day because we love the convenience of computers. And I think people who are really smart, like anyone in cybersecurity that I know of doesn't have social media. They like refuse. And that is to very telling to me. And I still have social media. But like people who are computer people kind of know that we are in this dangerous zone. And I think that the general population uh, cares less. And so we see it less in media because we kind of love the comfort of all of the things that the robots provide us. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into the categories. And so let's talk about the movie itself. We're talking around it. Let's talk about actual T2. I want to start with meaningful scene. What is the most meaningful scene in this movie? What is it to you, Andrew? So the most meaningful scene, I'm going to go through this one fast because I'm cheating on this one. But the most meaningful scene to me was a deleted scene from the movie that didn't make the theatrical release, which I think is bonkers. So for those of you who haven't seen the director's cut, and if you're watching not the director's cut, you should definitely watch the director's cut because it's got this scene in it. But it's right in the middle of the movie after they meet up with the Terminator and they make their escape from the T-1000 and they're there with Arnold and they're pulling bullets out of him because he's like taking all the bullets for them. And John is asking him, like, hey, can you learn so that you're not such a dork all the time and you can be more of a human? And in the normal movie, they just go like, yes, and move on. But in the in this deleted scene, Arnold says, well, there's a switch in my brain, like on my chip that's inside my head that Cyberdyne has set to like, don't learn. Right. It's like it's like a read write switch. So he tells them how to take it out. And when they take it out, he powers down. And at that moment, Sarah goes and takes a chip and is going to like smash it with a hammer because this is the easiest chance she's ever had to kill a Terminator. Right. He's powered down. She has his like brain in her hand and John stops her and they have an argument about whether or not they can trust the machine. John says, this is my friend. And Sarah has to learn not only to trust her son, but to trust this machine that she's had this gigantic traumatic event that changed her life 10 years earlier. Um, and it's like the turning point in the movie. It blows my mind that they cut it. <laughs> it's crazy, bro, that you mentioned this because I've seen this movie like 50 times, like with scripture. Like I know every single beat. I know every single moment. I just clicked it on HBO to start watching it. And the scene that you're talking about comes up. And I was like, 
whoa, 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 am I watching Terminator Salvation? This is not a part of the movie. And so I was really <laughs> surprised to see it. Do you know the scene that he's talking about, John? When I saw these deleted scenes, I thought to myself, why would they cut these scenes? That to me, this is the critical impact moment for all three characters that that drives them forward. For for the Terminator, it's the moment when he becomes essentially has the ability to become more human. Right, exactly. As much as as much as computers can. For Sarah, to to Andrew's point, it's the moment where she learns to trust herself, the Terminator, her son, and 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 for John Connor, it's the moment where he steps into he steps out of being the punk kid who's using a, a fake credit card to steal money and jump on the motorcycle and 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 you know leave school early and to actually saying I'm going to take some responsibility in my life and step into this role that I know one day I will fill. So why they took yeah. it out. I have no idea, but no question, it's important. And they all have a lot of growth throughout the rest of the movie. That's not like it switches there and then they're on a collision course with the end. Like they still have a lot of of trust to build and a lot of things go back and forth. But it's the first kind of collision of all those ideas. Um, And I think it is that idea of trust and overcoming your trauma and learning how to let go and learning how to trust someone else um, is really at the core of what this movie means and one of the reasons why it's so good. Um, as we get into the meaning of the movie, I think the whole idea of trust really is it. I know what you're all thinking, which is like, okay, I watched this whole movie and you're talking <laughs> about a scene that I haven't even seen. And so I do want to throw out another scene that I think is so important, which which is a really bizarre scene in the midst of this, which is like Sarah Connor is in the like mental hospital and she's like talking to the like, I don't know, psychiatrist who's there and she's kind of been locked up there forever. And he's trying to get her like, to share her feelings and she's acting really good. So John can get out of the hospital. And then eventually she kind of has this full blown meltdown where she's like, if any of you don't have SPF 1 million, you're going to have a really bad day and just screams out and, you know, like freaks out in the mental hospital. And it's this really like violent, like emotionally raw scene. Like it's a shocking scene, isn't it? I mean, especially if you've come off of watching Sarah Connor in Terminator one, who's just very like every woman, not totally damsel in distress, but kind of. And then you're introduced to her with this just crazy, angry outburst. When at the end of Terminator one, you think, okay, maybe she's going to become an action star or something else like that. But what you realize that makes the most sense is like, oh, she's become crazy. Because she knows what's actually going to happen. And she has this weight of knowledge where she's seen it. She has this traumatic experience. And that trauma has like taken a hold of her in this way. And it, in some ways, this may be the first like Me Too movie. Like, I, I don't know if that's too much to say. But I think it was this really powerful scene of like something happens to them that feels difficult and violating. And then your response to it. And so anyway, that whole scene where it's like, oh, this is not just she's a cool action star, but she's gone through trauma. I thought rooted this movie in such meaning. I also do think that the reveal of her as that is one of the reasons why this movie is such an amazing sequel um, is because it does what so few sequels did back then. And that was allowed the characters to grow and take the next step in their journey, not just do the same journey again. So the premise of the movie is the same like a time traveling hero shows up to rescue Sarah or Sarah and son from a killer time traveling robot. It's the same premise as the first one, but the characters are in fully different places and what they have to learn and grow and turn into are completely different. And the next evolutionary step of their character journeys, which makes it such a more interesting movie because it's building out the world and these people. 
absolutely it's so much more surprising to see them have to like go through these different journeys and respond in a different way okay i'm curious you guys do you have a least meaningful scene in terminator 2 I wouldn't say least meaningful. Maybe I would say seemingly unnecessary. And you're going to both disagree with me on this, I think, just because I know you. But what's the name of the of the big bad company? Skynet. Cyberdyne? Well, yeah. When they were infiltrating Skynet. Not to be a nerd. I'm just going to nerd out for a second. I'm going to interrupt. They're infiltrating Cyberdyne. Cyberdyne is the company. And oh, Skynet, Cyberdyne. Skynet is the neural network that they built that ends up taking over. Skynet's the program. Cyberdyne is the corporation. So, you know, I don't want the nerds coming for you, John. I'm not sure where we'd be without you, Andrew. So thank you for that. But so Cyberdyne headquarters, that was a long sequence and it was a pretty it was a pretty cool action sequence of events there. But honestly, for me, I was missing a little T-1000 action. And so I felt like it went a little too long in setups and wiring things and blowing up things. And and I thought, where is T-1000? That is Terminator. Terminator 2, to me, was Arnold Schwarzenegger versus T-1000. And I didn't get that for like 10 minutes or more. I thought some of that was longer than it needed to be. For me, I was so invested in that mission because I agree. The whole point of the story was like, oh, we got to kill the T-1000. But then all of a sudden, when she goes to Miles Dyson's house and like shoots him up, and the scene I talked about earlier, I believe that crazy woman would go into someone's house and kill them because they were thought the mission was that important. So anyway, that whole sequence when it happens, and then they have to go to Skynet or Cyberdyne or Tesla or Google or whatever it's called <laughs> to blow it all up. I was so invested in it because I was like, oh, this is so much more important than killing the T-1000. They've got to like destroy that robot arm. They've got to blow up the chip. Like this really matters. And so I got really invested in that mission, um, which is kind of like a B storyline. I, I felt like that that Cyberdyne headquarters was like watching Mission Impossible. I wanted more of the liquid, crazy-armed guy that could do things I'd never seen before. So you're wrong, John. I'm just going to come out and say it. You're wrong. That sequence is the one of the best sequences in the whole movie. So, uh, but you're right. It doesn't have the main, you know, T-1000 bad guy, but it's because they're saving him for the, the next bit. They're like building the stakes. And you have to have a sequence in which the Terminator is up against actual people. Because the Terminator in the first movie, he goes into the police station, right, and just like murders everybody. And they actually call that back in this in this movie as they're describing him as, you know, the individual who like blew up a police station eight years ago or 12 years ago, whatever they're saying the timeline is. And the thing that John tells him is you can't kill people, right? Like you can't kill people because it's wrong. And so it gives him this moment of like, how do I be the Terminator and human? And how do I like non-lethally engage? How do I be a hero Terminator? And if he's just fighting the other Terminator the whole time, we don't get to see the full version of that. And it's like an awesome scene because of how he has to like do all of that while like saving the cops while shooting at them. That's fair. So my least meaningful scene is, okay, there's a sequence when he has like the roses and the the shotgun and the roses box. Speaking of Godfather, that's like a Godfather reference, right? It's a little Godfather reference and it's breathtaking. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's this amazing scene. He's got the roses. John Connor just left the arcade. He's like in the back place in the mall and he's there. And then T-1000 there is Arnold's there. And it's this epic shootout. But in the background of that epic shootout, there is a large Pepsi vending machine 
that's there that's like clearly there in the shot and then literally they're shooting at each other and a dude comes out holding a can of pepsi and he's just like hey what's going on guys and he gets like blown away and i was like they just blew that guy away just so they could have a can of pepsi in the shot this is ridiculous it's like we uh we take a quick ad break from the Terminator movie to talk about Pepsi, but it's it's like the big turning reveal of the first act when you realize that Arnold is the good guy, but they're also sh- like shilling Pepsi at you. There is like 75 Pepsi references. And then there's also a moment like a few seconds later, he gets thrown out a window. And if you notice, there's a guy with a really fancy camera like taking pictures of it. And at the time, I was like, oh, if that was today, he'd have a phone. But this guy's got like a Pentex camera like taking photos. And I was like. There's literally Pintex photo placement or product placement there just because some product placement in this movie is ridiculous. Um, Speaking of that scene, when you guys saw this, so had you guys seen Terminator like the first Terminator before you went in and saw this one? I did. Yes. Okay. so going into this movie, did you know that Arnold was the good guy when you went into it? I did not. I was expecting like, oh, he's the bad guy, like because all of a sudden, like. When I was in middle school, it was like everything Arnold. So I like watched all his backlog, watched it at friend's house. And then I thought, okay, he's going to be the bad guy. And so I remember like, oh no, John, whatever else. And it blew my mind when all of a sudden like, oh, he's the one saving John. It was such a great reversal. It's one of those things that don't pay off today. You're like, oh, of course, Arnold's the good guy. But to audiences in real time, it was like, what is happening? I would have loved to have like been in in that spot because I, I grew up in the 90s. And so T2 was like all the rage. So Arnold was the good Terminator. That was just who he, he was in pop culture to me. So it was somewhat strange when I went and watched the whole series from front to back. And I watched Terminator 1 and he's the bad guy because in my brain, my whole life, Arnold has been the good guy. So to get that reversal, like it was actually meant would have been just wild the first time. Like I wish I could have had that kind of clean watch. And we wanted Arnold to be the good guy, right? Like, we loved him at this point. So the fact that, like, oh, he's going to kill a kid, that's gross. And so then when he doesn't, (laughs) then you're like, okay. Like, his character introduction, first of all, is so great. Can we talk about the scene in the biker bar? It's flawless. Well, I'm telling you, what what an incredible setup to his character and who he is and just his whole persona and the whole nine yards. John, where does this rank in like character introductions of like someone coming in a movie and like how they're introduced? Oh, man. I I mean, I don't I have to think about that one, Rob, for for a bit, but it's got to be near the top for sure. It's really good. Normally, you get like a character in an introduction scene where they just kind of like walk in and the camera pans up and the music goes bomb, 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 and then they move on. But this is like him suiting up but through an action sequence, basically, because we remember him from the first movie. He like takes Bill Paxton's clothes. Right. Yep. And so he's wearing this like leather jacket. It's super 80s, but he's wearing which this, like, Arnold whole, like, could not fit into Bill Paxton's clothes, by the way. I just have to stop yeah, there. Arnold yes. could not fit. <laughs> he's not wearing the same stuff Bill Paxton is. You want to see the Terminator as like leather jacket on a motorcycle, sunglasses like that picture. And so when they had to restart the movie, right, like you had to restart the mission. The rules are he has to show up naked. Right. So we have to get to that picture. So to set up this whole action sequence in which he is like basically suiting up, he like gets the outfit first and then he leaves the bar and the guy tries to stop him. And so then like that's how he gets the shotgun because that guy tries to stop him. So you're like, OK, now he's got like this. And he's taking the bike. And at the very last minute, he like turns around and grabs the shades. And it's like and that's the whole picture. Like it's so organic and it's so cool. And it's almost like a little funny, but like not so much that it's like annoying which is what happens in the third one it goes way too far well 
I think part of the reason I think this is the beginning of like the modern summer blockbuster is it is so funny. There's so many good jokes like throughout the movie when he shoots the dude in the kneecaps and he's like, he'll live, you know, and he does all these different. There's these great jokes or even those sunglasses, that security guard chick like hits him with the baton and then it breaks. And the look that he gives her is just like, I am going to destroy you, you know, and so it's just. (laughs) There's, it's like a Marvel movie. There's so many good jokes throughout. Andrew, you, you use that term, like it's just so cool. And honestly, in 1992, you couldn't get any cooler than Arnold Schwarzenegger on a motorcycle with a shotgun with his Ray-Bans. This is like, we had we had Days of Thunder, we had Top Gun, and now we had both those movies in the future with Arnold. Like that was the epitome of cool. And to like shout out James Cameron's like threading the needle on like this cool scene that's a little bit funny, but like setting up an action movie, setting up this character, they do basically the same exact scene again in the third one, but they like try to make it more funny. And at the end, he like puts on sunglasses that are like stars and then he like throws those out and like steps on them. And it's like really self-referential. And it's this one is self-referential because he's suiting up to be like the first movie. But the third one like pushes it just like one step further and it falls totally on its face. And so like the needle line that they're walking here to get it cool and get it fun and get it kind of funny, but still it works in the movie and it's not disrupting the tone or the mood is like flawless and like a masterclass in how to do this. One of my questions is, why was the playground on fire during the opening credits? Like, why is that playground just burning <laughs> because it's awesome <laughs> because this is 1992 was it weird to you I, so i'm watching the movie and like a teeter-totter is like burning there's like a chipmunk is burning there's like a merry-go-round that's just up in flames and what i was actually thinking is like this is really cool and then i was like oh man am i dark for thinking this is so cool <laughs> I mean, it's shot really cool. Like you have like, it's almost like it's like slow motion fire. And again, I think it sets the tone of the movie, which is like, this is going to be kind of cool and actiony. Like the shot itself is beautiful. But the other thing that I think it does is in the, the one of the like, again, master classes of like filmmaking in like show don't tell. Right. There's not a big like monologue about Sarah's mental state. They just do the credits over this playground burning and we get to see her nightmare in full later on. But in just watching this happen of like the world is going to burn, innocence is going to burn, all like these children are going to, it just like sets you in what Sarah's mental state is before you even meet her in the insane asylum in, in a way that sets the tone for this movie. I think it's also the score. The score of this movie is so epic and gets me fired up. I could watch like old ladies knitting people just speed jogging to that score. And I would just be like, this is the most epic thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) It just like fires me up. Yeah. The score was, I didn't even think of that. The score was amazingly good. I'm curious who that composer was, but it's like, I mean, I don't know. There's like drums and it's all synthy. And I was just like, whatever's happening, I'm in. So there's like two Terminator themes that like play on top of each other sometimes. So there's like the drums, like that's very good, Andrew. Which they have like a version of in the first one, but it's not that exact rhythm. It's not until T two that they like lock that in. But also the like banana banana right, that kind of like melody thing. 
that in the I'm first like seeing one, the whole like, score in my head right now. I'm like, it's like so cool. It's like the Terminator theme. The crazy thing to me when I was watching the first one is that that is the love theme from the first one. It only plays in two spots, and it's when Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor are like falling in love. And so they take that love theme from the first one and turn it into this action theme for the rest of the franchise, which I think is just like really awesome. That's so cool. interesting. That's so interesting. I do think the opening credits there, the juxtaposition of the playground being on fire is like if it were a forest fire burning, it'd be like, oh, OK, we, we've seen that before. If it's like a, a, a house burning, we've seen that before. But a playground burning with the merry-go-round in a circle, like you couldn't get any more uncomfortable or like this is going to be bad whatever is happening in this movie is is this is not good so it does sort of give this <laughs> ominous foreshadowing of what's to come did you guys watch the deleted ending the alternate ending that i sent you i didn't uh john did you watch it i did watch so, it you've watched like all the other movies andrew but you didn't watch the alternate ending which is I did not crazy it's got old sarah connor and she's there kind of like talking into a voice recorder and so it's like, that's what the like whole narration is throughout the movie. You know how the movie ends where it's like driving down the road at night and it's like, we can't quite mm -hmm. see the future, but whatever else It's literally that same narration. Like if a f machine can learn to feel, maybe we can all learn to feel it's that sort of narration, but it's like old Sarah Connor, like on a playground. And the guy who plays John Connor from the beginning is also on the playground. And she's like, John still has a battle, but now he has a new battle to fight parenting or it's something like that <laughs> it's like super cheesy and weird and i was like man this movie could have really gone off the rails that was something i was thinking about this movie about like scenes that don't quite work maybe my least meaningful scene could be that ending because it cuts from like the end they lower him down he's got the thumbs up just one of the best endings and i think to some degree they knew this is the end of the movie we don't need to do anything else and so they cut to the final shot of just the road, which it's not even a good shot of a road. It feels like someone strapped a camera on their front bumper and just hit record. Um, and then you have that final like monologue just to send it off. And it feels like this is weird. It felt like they're just like, and let's get to credits. No, it was like the studio saw the old lady cut and they're like, that's not happening. And Cameron's like, this is my masterpiece. And they're like, send an intern out to the road, slap the voiceover on. <laughs> we got to end this somehow different. It, it very much feels that way. But at the same time, it keeps the focus not on that. Like, you just know that like, OK, we had to wrap it up. But it keeps the focus on the great ending, which is them in the smelting plant watching uh, the Terminators like final sacrifice, which is wonderful. Like, it's really good. So that's my next question, which is, what is that plant that they went to? Like, what do they do there? It's a smelting plant. It's like where you make like massive iron beams and stuff. You have to like take the ore down into like its liquid form and you pour it in molds. And then like, you know, it's yeah, but, but it's like a metal that, smelting plant. That was one of my questions. Honestly, was like they're in this amazing like chase scene through the city that happens to just dead end at a smelting plant, which I don't know how many times I've used that word in a sentence, but now. We're going to use it a few more times, <laughs> the smelting plant. I guess it's true. You're in Pittsburgh. You're just going down, take a right. You think you're going to the McDonald's and all of a sudden you end up at the smelting plant. That might happen, but not in Los Angeles where this movie is. <laughs> so before, before we get to that, the, the smelting plant, can we talk about special effects in this movie for a minute? Like I've, I've, my whole, I remember being in eighth grade and I, every Saturday afternoon, I would take my little bicycle to the Ben Franklin and, and then park it there. And there was a little uh, comic book store called the Dragon's Lair next to 
Ben Franklin, and I'd go in there and I would buy comic books. And I always bought this magazine called Starlog, and I think they still make Starlog. And in Starlog, they had like the, all the special effects, makeup, and how to. It was all these early, early movies. It was the early, yeah, Star, early Star Trek. And, and so, of course, Terminator was a huge, it was like a three editions of Starlog was what happened in Terminator 2 and how they elevated special effects. What are you thinking, 1991, you go and see this film? What are you thinking with these effects? Honestly, for me, it was, again, before this, we were still pretty much in the era of mostly practical special effects, video effects, green screen. I should say there was some green screening happening, but it was so obvious it was laughable. It's the things that we make fun of in Mystery Science Theater 2000, 3000. But but now uh, the special effects in T2 were literally mind-blowing. I remember sitting in the theater thinking, how are they doing this? How is this happening? This guy just had a metal sword come out of his hand. The, the, the special effects I thought were were just amazing. And I think they stand up 20 years later now. For me, there's three movies that I've ever seen where I was like, I cannot believe what I'm seeing on camera just from special effects. It's Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, and Matrix. Those were the three movies that, like, when I saw Jurassic Park, we're, I think we're going to do an episode on it because the new movie's coming out this summer. But when I saw Jurassic Park, I was like, I cannot believe, like, these look like real dinosaurs. That was amazing. And when I saw this movie, it was the same thing. Not that there were dinosaurs, but when I saw this movie, I was like, what is happening? Like, I, how did they do that? That's all I was asking. Like, how did they do that? Andrew, what did you think? Special effects, Terminator 2. So the first time I saw this movie was like in 2010. So at that point, special effects had progressed quite a bit. I do remember thinking in 2010 that they held up pretty darn good and it was still really exciting. I would say even today, they're good enough that they don't take you out of the movie. But watching it this time around, I was thinking it's unfortunate that they made the Terminator liquid metal because then he has to be reflective. And even to this day in 2022, reflective surfaces are one of the hardest things to CG correctly. It's just it's like a whole thing. I thought uh, some of those moments where he was like transitioning uh, didn't really hold up all that great. But it didn't take me out of the movie because the movie's just so great. I think you're overthinking it. This movie totally holds up. Every effect, and actually, <laughs> every effect, actually, really, every effect works. And actually, dude, I love the like practical effects. Like they're really mm-hmm. wrecking semis. They're really like driving semis through stuff. It's like that's not CGI'd. And so the practical effects meet liquid metal guy. I'm just like that mix is like perfect. Like now everything's too CGI'd. I fully agree with that. I think because of what their limitations were. They only CG'd what they had to CG. And so it still feels really tactile almost all of the time. Like when his arms and stuff turn into swords and the like pry bars and everything, that all feels real because I think the CG is only in like the moments where it's turning and then it's a practical situation that they have. I think that's one of the reasons that it holds up narratively so well. So I want to ask this. Let's get back to the meaningful part of the movie. Who's the most meaningful character? That's a tough question in this movie. I think the most meaningful character in this movie for me is the Terminator. And maybe that's that's way too easy of an answer. First of all, the Terminator 1 to Terminator 2 and the difference in him being the villain to him being essentially the guide or the sage in the second right. movie. He's that impact character. That was yep. really interesting to me. And then when they flipped the switch in the deleted scene and he became more human watching his journey. And of course, without the Terminator, you don't have a movie. So that's the most impacting character for me. There you have well, it. 
Can I ask about Arnold Schwarzenegger? Like, where do you think this ranks in his career performances? Well, I, it, ironically, I think this is Arnold's best performance, and he's playing a robot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not the biggest compliment, but honestly, I think he crushed this. I just think this role was made for him. I think given his accent, his his build, his personality, just the his his chiseled face, the whole thing like works as a Terminator, and it all plays to his strengths. I think this is like the apex of Arnold Schwarzenegger action hero, and he played other roles where he wasn't you know an action hero or whatever, and tried some dramatic stints. But to me, this was the apex of his performance. Yeah, I feel like most movies, especially running up to this, he was like a physical specimen, right? Like. This is the strongest man in the world, pumping iron. He's a bodybuilder. Kind of that's what he's famous for. And this movie, I'm like, oh, he is giving a performance. Like, I really connected with him emotionally. He's got the right amount of humor. He's got the right amount of heart. And here's what I always think when I think of a great performance is I'm like, could you put anyone else in this movie and it works or it's as good or it doesn't fall off a cliff? And I think like, I can't think of an actor before or since who could play this like Arnold does. Like, I agree with what you said. It is the perfect movie for him. I'm going to do a quick rabbit trail here. <laughs> I just thought of it, but did this jump out to you guys at all? It probably didn't, but who's the actor that plays T-1000? Robert Patrick. So Robert Patrick's about to kill Sarah or John or one of the characters, and all of a sudden Terminator, Duana Schwarzenegger, comes up from behind the gears, you know, and he's there with the gun. And then all of a sudden, Robert Patrick has this moment when he's like, what? Like, like this very, <laughs> very human scared moment, like, like shock and awe surprised. Like, <laughs> he's a robot. Why is he so shocked and surprised? Like, he's caught with his pants down in this moment where, like, the Terminator shows, shows up. <laughs> like, what? This, is not a, this is not a T-1000 response. It's a good point because he kind of seems like a bored mall cop through most of the movie where he's just kind of like, he can take it or leave it, like doesn't really care. <laughs> he's just kind of like, have you seen this boy? He doesn't care. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh snap, I'm about to get destroyed. Well, he's like, <laughs> I wish you could see John's face right now. He's doing like a the Robert Patrick, like what is happening? I do think Arnold's performance is exactly what we're saying. It's like the perfect Arnold role. I think it's his maybe... Not to throw like a ton of shade, but like he's maybe not the most dynamic actor, but he does Whoa. have this heart. And so constraining him by the like robot of it all allows some of the stiffness to play into the role. But then he can use those little bits of humor without going too far or being asked to go too far in this way that you can see the heart this actor has and the authenticity and all of that within this very sort of constrained proportion that really is very heartwarming while also really cool. It's like it's it's keeping the guardrails right where they need to be to make this really, really great performance. Yeah, I love that about the constraints. I, I need to talk about another most meaningful character for me, and that's actually on this watch, Edward Furlong really jumped out for me. Um, so many movies, especially that really depend on a child actor, can go sideways where you're like, ah, it's a little bit too much. And I'm not saying he's perfect, but he had this real like authenticity, this sweetness when he's like joking around with him and he's like, we say hasta la vista, baby, and like give him all that coaching or when he's like, yeah, my dad was this and my mom thinks this and they're like underneath the car, like working. There's all these moments that like, again, we talked about the playground earlier and the importance of that, but like he embodies this sort of sweetness 
of childhood meets the like, oh, I've got to grow up and become this like world leader. And his performance, I actually thought was really good. And just as a character, this young 10 year old who has the weight of the world on his shoulders, like, I don't know, maybe more as a parent or something else like that. But it really stuck out to me this time. Yeah, I think he really is capturing the emotion of that character in order for you to like connect and relate to like this kid that is ultimately like going to be the Messiah. And the fact that they start him out as just like a punk kid, he has to arc, he has to go through some things. And I think he does a pretty darn good job. I do think there are moments in which it feels like he's not in the same scene with the other actors that he like picked an emotion and he's just playing that and may not necessarily be like responding to the other actors that are in the scene with him. But he really is sort of going all in emotionally, which a lot of child actors can't do. I was watching the movie and I was like, what happened to Edward Furlong and like did a deep dive? And dude, his life, like go on Wikipedia. It's really sad to me. It like falls into that like child actor, like kid had everything on his shoulders. And just like he's had so many like addiction issues, different things like that. And so it kind of Mm. broke my heart to see like what happened to him. And I like... I hope he turns around like it like it seems like since 2017 or so things are going better. And so I just I can't imagine being in like I think they found him at like a mall literally. And all of a sudden he's like in the most famous move in the world and what that does to someone. For sure. So something that you just said there, the idea of like John Connor has an arc of going from just like a kid to like being a leader. I think it's so fascinating because I don't think he ever gets to leader territory, which is what makes me so disappointed about Terminator 3 and how just horrendous of a misfire that movie is, is because I think where John Connor goes, like the trajectory of the Terminator franchise is, you know, it's all about Sarah in the first movie. John doesn't exist. But in this one, we meet John, who's supposed to be the Messiah. He's supposed to be this great leader. And when you meet him, he's just like this little punk kid. Like he sucks. Like John Connor sucks when you meet him. And by the end of the movie, he's not really a leader. He's had some good ideas, but I think he grows to be responsible and to understand that he needs human connection. When we meet him, he has no relationship with his foster family, really no one at school. He's just this kid all out on his own because his mom has unfortunately abandoned him in an effort to protect him, right? And so I see we see him mature and grow up, but he's miles away from being a leader. And so I would have loved to see in the third movie of him having to fully step into that and figure out what does this mean for me to be a leader? And that just does not happen. But it's this wonderful, what could be a mid chapter, you know? I actually do think you're right. They could have grown that character so much more and they kind of missed it never being able to. But I do think there's a moment where you see like, oh, this guy is a leader. And I actually believe he could lead the resistance to it. And for me, that moment is when Sarah goes into Miles Dyson's house. Uh She goes, Uh shoots everything up. He's there. She's holding the gun over him. And he looks so terrified. Like I've seen people holding a gun in front of people in a million other movies. But this one, he is shaking and whatever else. And you feel like Miles Dyson he's is about shaking. to die. Yeah, Miles yeah. Dyson is shaking. Sarah's holding gives, a gun at him. Gives this really unexpected performance, by the way. All of his like fear and anxiety stuff is so jittery and so manic. Really kind of, I don't know if it's great, but it's memorable for sure. Like the way he does yeah. it, even his death scene is so jittery. It's not what you expect. Yeah, Joe Morton, really powerful performance. But so this is going on. It's a terrifying home invasion. And then in the midst of that, she realizes... She can't kill him. She falls down and collapse. They're all huddled over in the corner. And then the Terminator and John Connor walk in and he takes control of what is such an impossible situation. He goes over to the little boy and he says, hey, come in the other room with me. Show me your toys. And then he looks at Arnold and says, show them the truth. And that's when he takes out the switchblade and starts uh-huh. cutting up his arm and shows his yeah. hand. 
And the way that John Connor like handled that whole situation and just took control of it, I was like, that's what a leader does. He knew how to protect the little boy. He knew how to check in on his mom. And he knew how to show Miles Dyson what he needed to see so that he totally. could be an ally and help them save it. And that sequence is where I was like, okay, I believe that John is a leader. Right. I absolutely agree. I think that's where you see this glimmer of like, oh, this is who this kid can be, right? It's the one moment where he steps up, but he's still what, like 11? And so for the rest of the movie, largely, he still is like relying on the other two because he absolutely has to. And, you know, like, run for your life chase sequence but yeah you see that that glimmer there and i i wish we could have got this great third movie where he fully comes into his own which is obviously does not materialize by the way that was one of my meaningful scenes was that scene when she was rampaged the house and was about to kill him and chose not to and then the conversation she had with john connor there i think that showed sort of this beginning of hey the future matters and our choices today impact the future even in small ways yeah that's that's when the movie turns right like where it's like okay there's depth like she's not just resigned like she tries to do the heroic thing which is kill him but the more heroic thing she realizes is like no the goal is like to stop this uh future to stop what's going on and so, and it's a really interesting idea because a lot of times when we think about would you go back in time and kill hitler it's like okay that's that's one ethical question. But this question was like, would you go back in time and kill the person who created the atomic bomb? Who I don't even know who that is off the top of my head. Some sort of scientist. Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. Thank you. Innocent guy. Totally just family man, you know, playing on his Mac DOS or whatever he's doing, like uh, writing some software while his kid like has his toy car driving all around. And then she goes in the house and it is a violent dark. Like it's terrifying that scene. And his performance is terrifying, but you sh you see her wrestle through that. So I think that's a great one, too. During, during that scene, you kind of get a sense of like, look, you don't know what people are capable of. And just because they look or feel one way that, you know, we're all essentially what it's saying is, hey, we're all capable of incredible good or incredible evil. And I love the fact that she chooses not to kill him before John and the Terminator show up. Like, I think the version of that scene you're expecting is that John and the Terminator show up and stop her. But the fact that she stops herself gives us that moment of seeing that she is changing and she's having that character growth uh, and that she is not just a victim of her circumstances at this point in time and needs the saving of John and the Terminator, right? Is that she's making her own decisions. It's such a powerful moment. Like, all the, you know, it's this popcorny fun movie. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, we're in a really like tense epic drama scene here. All right. Next question is this. What is the meaning of the movie? This is like your final argument, big idea, like core thing. Like, what is this movie trying to say? John, what is the meaning of the movie? I mean, there's there's so much here that, that we could say about the meaning of this movie, which is funny because we're talking about a quintessential summer action blockbuster, which typically you could say, what's the meaning of the movie and have no response. But I do think there's a lot that's here in T2. Um, but my meaning of the movie could be actually the poster little tagline, and that is the future is worth fighting for. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. This kind of gives us a glimpse of what the future could hold or could look like. And I think even for today, it's a timely movie for 2022 when we don't know what's going to happen in the Ukraine or Russia. We don't know what's going to happen with the next pandemic. We don't know what's going to happen with our own family or our own lives. But And so sometimes I think the temptation is to just say, you know, forget it. I'm just going to live today and, and whatever happens, happens. But I think the meaning here is to say, look, the future is worth 
fighting for and there is still hope that that could be good and so that makes our decisions matter and so the decision of whether or not to crush the little cpu chip matters the decision to fight through matters the, the decision to not kill the guy so you so really sarah connor had several at least those two opportunities to exact revenge and pull back on that decision with dyson and then again in the deleted scene with essentially killing the terminator and she chose hey you know what just because i feel a way right now it's more important for me to look to the future and think about what this could mean so that's kind of my meaning of the movie is the future is worth fighting for love it what about you andrew so my meaning of the movie might be a little bit meta um not like mark zuckerberg meta uh, but like a little meta textual. I'm tracking. I'm tracking. I think my biggest emotional response to this movie, like how I felt watching it, was kind of being in awe of how good of a sequel this is, which I know we talked huh. about in the beginning. But I think one of this movie's meanings to culture, maybe not narratively, but its meanings to us as a story loving movie watching culture is its sequelness and watching how James Cameron was able to take a premise to take a set of characters and evolve them to tell a deeper, more meaningful story than his first outing, I think was really meaningful to me. I think showing people that change is good. Um, I think we go into movies a lot of times like I want what I want. I want more of the same. James Cameron in an interview about this movie has said, when you're making a sequel, you want to give the audience something they don't expect. But then when they see it, they say, I couldn't have seen it any other way. Of course, this is what, what had to happen. So giving someone a surprise that then feels inevitable um, is kind of the best way to create a sequel. And so to watch this masterclass of evolution in storytelling to me was really inspiring and something as far as like making adaptations and um, taking source material and evolving them. Um, it was like a really good teaching tool i think that was just like a thrill ride along the way so to me that is like a meta meaning of the movie but something that like sticks with me as like almost a manual for how to wonderfully tell a story kind of makes you wish that cameron made more sequels like i wish there was a titanic 2 or something like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah is that, is that is that uh titanic 2 jack is back <laughs> i don't know i mean i know he's doing avatar 2 which is like i almost think this idea of like the perfectionist sequel has destroyed him because he made Avatar in 2009 and it's 2022 and he's still working on it. And so I think that thing is like messed with him a little bit, but I agree. Like what you're saying about surprising inevitable, it's like, Oh yeah, of course that's what you do, but it is so stinking hard to do that. It's been done very few times. And that's, that is part of the legacy of this movie. The fact that he was willing to wait his patience to wait nine years, seven years, eight years, whatever it was between one and two, which you've seen so many franchises where they they get, you know, Transformers, whatever it is. It's like one, two, three, four, five. You want to make it as fast as you can so you maximize the revenue of the audience. Whereas I think Cameron intentionally, even Avatar 1, first of all, he waited so long to do the Avatar movie because of technology. He wanted to make sure it was there to do it. And then he waited long enough. How long has it been since Avatar? It's almost been 10 years, hasn't it? I mean, it's been a long time. 2009. Wow. So that's a long time to wait to make the second one. And he could have just said it's good enough. And I mean, that movie was a global blockbuster, but yet he said, I'm going to wait in, in, until it's the right time to make number two. So patience to me is part of that, Andrew, of what this movie taught us in terms of movie making. 
and for our listeners who are really interested in kind of this this conversation about story structure and how to make sequels, there's an incredible uh, video essay uh, from a guy named Michael Tucker. He runs a YouTube channel called Lessons from the Screenplay that really digs into this and how specifically James Cameron in both Aliens and the Terminator franchise takes the same premise and then infuses it with a different organizing principle. So he takes a love story from Terminator 1 and turns it into a family story in Terminator 2 and then takes like a horror movie in Aliens and turns it into an action movie while maintaining the same premise. And it's a really interesting look at how you can reinvent things while staying true to the heart of something. And uh, they do really good work over there on that channel. We'll share that essay uh, in our show notes. We'll also put it in our Facebook group if you're there. Uh, come watch it on Facebook and tell us what you think. I know you picked this movie because you're like, this movie has meaning despite it being about killer robots. What to you was the thing that jumped out? To me, this is a story about three people who all need each other. You have Sarah Connor, who doesn't even know how to be a mom. There's the scene where she's like sitting in the truck and Edward Furlong's like, do you want some fries? And she can't even like look at him and talk to him because she's so deep in thought. So she's so concerned with like saving humanity, but she can't save her own son. That's right there. And then you have Arnold, who is just like, he is seen as the villain by everyone. He is the guy who was in the scene before, who was like shooting people in the mall and doing all these stuff. And everyone sees him as a villain. Except for Edward Furlong, who's like, no, this is my friend. And the scene that you talked about, he actually says, like, you can't kill him because he's my friend. There's almost this, like, boy and his dog relationship between yeah. Edward Furlong and Arnold. and Or maybe father-son. Like, it's kind of hints at both. It's a weird mix of both, yeah. But, like, there's for sure, like, a real friendship. This kind of, like, Mr. Miyagi Daniel, like, friendship between Arnold and Edward Furlong. You know, like, they're mentor mentee there's something going on there and then you have edward furlong who's like he's like my mom's a psycho he's kind of like written off everything that she's talked about and then he realizes like oh no my mom was right the way that she sees the world the reality that she knows it's actually true when arnold says to her for the first time he's like i always wrote my mom off as insane but actually she knows this world is a dark and scary place and i know as a parent a lot of times i'm like hey kids, this world's a dark and scary place and they haven't seen it firsthand. It may sound crazy. And then eventually when you come of age, you have real heavy experiences, maybe not with a psycho robot, but you have your own like real heavy experiences that are like, oh, my parents were actually right about this. And so I think what the trinity of these three and the way that they're all broken, but they all need each other is where this movie finds so much meaning and so much depth and why it's not just an average summer blockbuster and why there's something more to it. You know what other movie does that great? What's that? Takes three people and, and they all need each other and they all have their own uh, take on a on the same problem. I'm so scared of what you're about to say, but go ahead. Hot Dog Fingers the movie, baby. Everything <laughs> all at once is the same thing. <laughs> That's true. It's this, it's this trinity. That's a literal family. This is like some literal family members and robot. But yeah, like developing three arcs at the same time is really tricky. It's like everything everywhere all at once. Terminator. Like, I don't know what other movies do that well. Like, it's not done very frequently. Makes me hope that there's some blockbusters this summer with some depth. Like, there's so many great action sequences, but I do think there is something more to this movie, and that's why I wanted to talk about it. In the last uh, three days, I've watched Terminator 1 all the way through Terminator Salvation, so uh, it got me back in the whole, like, Terminator world. So, Andrew, you are now our resident Terminator canon expert, for sure. (laughs) I know. I would also say I have one more, if you like Terminator, you might also like, and that is True Lies, another James Cameron movie, but it's probably Arnold's second funniest movie. It's like an action set piece. It has Jamie Lee Curtis uh, from Everything Everywhere All at Once. 
super foxy young Jamie Lee Curtis. And uh, it's a great summer blockbuster fun time. And so it's maybe a lesser seen Arnold movie, but I love that movie. So True Lies, worth checking out. You know, I've never seen it. I should put that on my list. You should. So if you like Terminator 1 and Terminator 2 and you're like, man, I want more of this Terminator world, all the sequels are going to disappoint you. They keep swinging and missing. Um, They can't quite figure out how to keep building out this world. But there was one thing that they did way back in like 2008, I want to say. There was a show called The Sarah Connor Chronicles. It was on Fox and it only got two seasons. And it's a little bit like young adulty. Um, a little bit like a CW vibe, but it stars Lena Headey as Sarah Connor. And it really explores more of this mother son relationship in what does it mean for these two to be on the run together? How does she be a good mom in this situation where her she has to protect her son while also trying to like fend off the end of the world? And they have a time traveling robot that comes along with them who is a teenage girl who is John's age, which is like a whole other thing. So it's kind of a split off of the universe, but it is probably the best version of the next chapter of this story. And it's a good two season show that's currently on Hulu. This is fun, guys. Yeah, good episode, fellas. We thought it was great. Tell us what you thought. Remember to like and subscribe. Until then, we'll see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie. Hasta la vista.